Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I'll be your host for the next hour here on WFMU. Freeform station of the nation and the greatest radio station of the world. How lucky are you and how lucky am I to be involved in this station? It's so great to be back here in Jersey City. I was out for the last two weeks. So it's been three weeks since I've been in the captain's chair. It's a real pleasure to be back. Pleasure and privilege as always. I uh, went with my family to Japan for a little over a week, and we had a great time seeing the sights there and uh, eating the food. And uh, I guess I could do a whole show just on Japan and the... uh, the interesting uses of technology we saw there, but that's not what this evening's show is about. We're going to be talking instead with a return guest here on Tectonic. Uh, Meredith Broussard is back on Tectonic. She was first on Tectonic in uh, May of 2018, so just about five years ago, talking about her previous book, Artificial Unintelligence, How Computers Misunderstand the World. And this time she is back to talk about her new book, which I liked a lot, called More Than a Glitch, Confronting Race, Gender, and Ability Bias in Tech. And I'm going to get right into that in just a moment. Uh, But first, I wanted to say thank you to my two fill-in hosts who were... Uh, who did such a great job uh, guest hosting Tectonic the past two weeks. Two weeks ago was Roger, the the host of Double Dip Recess, which is our Saturday morning kids show, well, kids and others show from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern on Saturdays. And Roger, if you didn't didn't hear the show, I would recommend that you... (laughs) There's someone's banging on the door. Uh, I would recommend that you go back into the archives and listen to the show that Roger put together that included interviews with college students and recent grads talking about their relationship to digital technology, especially social media and some of these um, smartphone apps that the kids are all using these days. And it was, it was really interesting to hear in their own words, you know, rather than, rather than let's say, my own opinions, about uh, what's right or wrong about these apps instead to hear from the young people themselves. So go back in the archives at WFMU.org and, uh, and listen to that show. And then last week, station manager Ken Friedman graciously uh, guest hosted Tectonic and brought on another past Tectonic guest, Matt Taibbi, journalist Matt Taibbi, talking about the Twitter files and his analysis of the Twitter files and um, maybe I'll say more about that interview if we have some time after this interview with Meredith Broussard. But let me just say, I fully support Ken bringing on Matt Taibbi. Matt is welcome here at Tectonic, and I learned a lot from the interview. And uh, I see no reason to, uh, to not to have invited him. Uh, let me just say that uh, as as clearly as I can. We bring on to Tectonic a multiplicity of voices, a variety of voices and perspectives. And as long as people are trying to tell us something that they believe is true and they have some reason to uh, to defend that as the truth, it's worth us hearing from those people. And, uh, and, and my guest uh, this evening, Meredith Broussard, fits right into that. She is bringing up 
some truths about how tech and the tech industry uh, are structured, maybe some uncomfortable truths for some. And I still think it's important for us to focus on those truths, just as Matt Taibbi brought up some truths about, uh, well, again, I'll maybe get into that after the interview. Um, but let's listen to this interview with, with Meredith Broussard uh, to talk about more than a glitch. If you'd like to join in the live listener chat, go to WFMU.org, click playlist and comments. You can join in the conversation and uh, I will be on the board as well. Let's go ahead and listen to my interview with Meredith Broussard here on Tectonic on WFMU. Meredith Broussard, welcome back to Tectonic. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. It's great to have you back. You were on the show first in May of 2018, almost five years ago now, talking about your first book, Artificial Unintelligence, How Computers Misunderstand the World, which I liked a lot and I have referred friends and colleagues to that book over the years. Now you've got another excellent book called More Than a Glitch, Confronting Race, Gender, and Ability Bias in Tech. I thought maybe we could start with the title, Meredith, More Than a Glitch. You write in the introduction that calling something a glitch means it's a temporary blip, something unexpected but inconsequential. A glitch can be fixed. On the other hand, the biases embedded in technology are more than glitches. Can you say something about some of these biases that are embedded in technology that cannot be fixed with a quick code update? I started thinking about this issue when I was thinking about how much importance we ascribe to incidents where technology is being racist or sexist or ableist. Uh, in programming, we have kind of different levels of importance. So a bug is something that deserves fixing and a glitch is something that is ephemeral. We refer to a glitch as, as a blip, as something that you know is weird, but we're not really too concerned about it. Right. And so we tend to refer to technology being biased as a glitch. But what I'm arguing in the book uh, is that it's a more substantial problem and we need to pay attention to it. So what I do in the book is I tell a bunch of stories all together. Uh, I elevate the amazing journalism and scholarship that's been done on this subject over the past couple of years. And when you see all of these incidents together, it has a different impact. It has a different weight. And you understand the way that this is a systemic problem. It's not just something that, uh, that happens every so often. You know, it's something that has real importance. Yeah, I appreciated that you made the point several times in the book that computers are increasingly being used for social outcomes. And we'll get into some of these, but you're making the point that computers are just a reflect, they start as a reflection of the world they inhabit. I mean, if, if someone believes that racism, sexism, and ableism don't exist in the world, then there's, there's not much more to say. But if people can agree that those isms do exist, the algorithms, the platforms, the systems start by reflecting those because the code was written in that soup originally, and they even can work to amplify those problems. 
which is even more troubling. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. A really good example of this is mortgage approval algorithms. So the markup reported on mortgage approval algorithms of a couple of years ago, what they found was that automated mortgage approval algorithms are 40 to 80% more likely to deny borrowers of color versus their white counterparts. And of course, homeownership is a major way of building generational wealth. Right. So why are the mortgage approval algorithms discriminating? Well, it's not because the developers uh, set out to write a racist algorithm. What happened is the algorithms are constructed the way that all machine learning algorithms are constructed. People took a bunch of data, historical data, fed it into the computer and said, computer, make me a model. The computer said, okay. And it made a model, machine learning model, that showed the mathematical patterns in the data. And then that model was what was used to predict who was going to be a good credit risk for a mortgage in the future, right? And so this is a totally legitimate data science method. But what those data scientists were not taking into account was the sociological factors embedded in that data, the history of financial discrimination in uh, in lending in the United States, the history of residential segregation in the United States. And all of these, frankly, shameful practices are embedded in the historical data. And so they're reproduced in the mortgage approval algorithms. And that's why we see bias in the algorithms. So there's not really a way to get around this. There isn't such a thing as unbiased historical data about who has been given mortgages in the United States in the past. Yeah. And to your, and to your larger point in the book, this is not something that can be brought up in a code review and fixed by changing a couple lines of code. I mean, that, that's, that's simply not possible to, to fix this as though it was a bug. As you say, it's more than a glitch. Another example that uh, you wrote a whole chapter on that I liked a lot was facial recognition. This is something that I've talked about a lot on the show. Since you were on five years ago, Meredith, I have talked a lot about facial recognition and the discriminatory outcomes of that technology. And I agree with you. I think it should be banned, just banned. But let's let's back up for a second. You tell the story of Robert Williams in Detroit, which I covered, I think, the week after this all went down in Detroit. Mm. But can you, um, f- for listeners who weren't listening a few years ago when that, when that all happened, the police were looking for someone who had stolen some goods from a Shinola store in downtown Detroit. They had a little bit of security cam footage, and they run it through their facial recognition system, and it says, well, there's a chance it's a gentleman named Robert Williams. And so can you... Fill in the story from there. What happened? And obviously it was, it was false. Uh, this was a totally inaccurate outcome. What happened to Robert Williams? Well, he was wrongfully arrested. He was wrongfully detained because of a facial recognition match that was inaccurate. Uh, and facial recognition systems, uh, we know from uh, the Gender Shades paper and from the NIST study, we know that these systems are better at recognizing light skin than dark skin. They're better at recognizing men than recognizing women. Uh, Trans and non-binary folks are generally excluded from these systems entirely. 
And so who's affected by uh, poor facial recognition matches in policing? Well, it's people with darker skin. Uh, it's people, it's communities who are already over-policed. You know, one of the things that data scientists often say when you bring up facial recognition is they say, well, you know, if the problem was that the training data didn't have enough people of different skin types and different skin shades, then maybe we'll just, you know, increase the diversity in the training data or we'll make it more accurate. And that would absolutely work to make facial recognition more accurate. But an abolitionist view of the situation would say, listen, let's just not use facial recognition in policing at all because it is disproportionately weaponized against communities of color. You're bringing up an interesting dichotomy of responses to facial recognition. They're practically opposite. One is, if there's a problem with recognizing darker skin tones, let's get more training data Let's basically let's increase the surveillance. Let's increase our investment in facial rec. If we have a problem, let's surveil people more. And then the inaccuracy will, as soon as we get to a fully Orwellian system, then all the inaccuracy will have been ironed out of the system. And then it's going to be great. You know, we'll all live under cameras all the time. And yeah, I'm not, I'm not here for that, uh, that vision of the future. <laughs> Uh, and it's a it's a foolish vision. I mean, there is no such thing as a future world mediated by uh, constant surveillance technology that makes everything all better. Like that's just it's not reasonable. There was a comment later in the book that I thought linked in with this. This was in the EdTech surveillance chapter. Maybe we'll get to. But there was a study written by Shabita Parthasarathy that said something about facial recognition and surveillance in, in general that's being used in ed tech. And here's what the study said. Not only is the technology not suited to security purposes, but it also creates a web of serious problems beyond racial discrimination, including normalizing surveillance, eroding privacy, institutionalizing inaccuracy, and creating false data. I thought that was really well put. The racial discrimination is a problem. One possible response from the tech bros is, okay, well, we'll just, we'll fix it. It's a glitch. We'll fix, it's a bug. We'll fix it. But this comment from this paper shows that's not, that's not sufficient because as you quote unquote fix the facial recognition accuracy problem, you're normalizing surveillance. You're eroding privacy. You have all these other knock-on effects. And as you say, that's, that's not a world... I think any of us want to live in, mm -hmm. except maybe the guys who are selling the technology. Well, yeah, the guys who are selling you the technology, that's the world that they <laughs> want to live in. You know, it allows them to make a lot more money. And I don't know, that's not what I'm here for. Yeah. So if you're, if you're not here for the Orwellian fully surveilled society, then we get to the other option in this dichotomy. And that's the, as you say, the abolitionist view. And you write that 19 cities have already banned facial rec. So that's kind of good news. It really is. On the other hand, it's a patchwork, as you also write. And you have these other tools like Clearview AI that are being presented to police departments, other government agencies as a commercial tool. And so sometimes I think Clearview, a tool like Clearview, evades the facial rec ban, right? Because it's 
it's not being developed by the the municipality or the state. Mm-hmm. Um, another problem is uh, when one agency uh, is banned from using a tool like facial recognition and policing, and the neighboring agency is allowed, then what you can do is you can just walk over to your friend's office who has that tool and you say, oh, hey, can you look something up for me? Right. right? So people are people are getting around the bans. There's a there's a government report that I cite in the book that explains exactly the extent of of how and when this is happening. So we really need to change the culture. We need to change people's people's faith in technology. And we need to just add more nuance to the discussions. And we need to think about what kind of world do we want and what kind of world are we creating by spending all of this money and time and effort on increased surveillance using tools that don't work particularly well and are not getting us toward the world that we want. Increased surveillance using tools that don't work very well that are also amplifying the racism, sexism, and ableism that have been part of the culture historically. Yep. Why are you against that, Meredith? (laughs) I know, it's really shocking, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's really shocking that I would take this radical position. (laughs) Why why are you so radical? Why are you against innovation, Meredith? (laughs) (laughs) But seriously, uh, this is another theme in the book that came up several times you're really committing an act of heresy. I think we just need to name this. You're being a heretic in this technological society because you actually suggest that sometimes, brace yourselves, listeners, sometimes we might not want to use digital technology. (gasps) It's so shocking, isn't it? I mean, you, you actually wrote those words, and it was so refreshing to read that because, of course... That's the right response to this. Why do we have to default to using digital technology for everything? Uh, I have a couple of quotes here. Instead of techno-chauvinism, that's a term that you pioneered in your first book, Artificial Unintelligence. Instead of techno-chauvinism, I'm going to offer a different solution, using the right tool for the task. Sometimes the right tool is a computer. Sometimes it's not. Again, why so radical, Meredith? Um, (laughs) And then later, I suggest we think more holistically. Let's not default to tech when it's not necessary. And then later, I want to normalize not using technology when the technology is impossible to make fair. And then one more. Why use inferior technology to replace capable humans when the humans are already doing a good job. So I'm going to guess that when you float some of these ideas to the bros, they say, well, this is all nice and good, Meredith, beautiful vision here. But the fact is we live in an exponential society and humans don't scale. And so we need the, the scaling effects of digital technology in order to accomplish the tasks at hand. What do you say to that? Well, I think that if I were wrong, then I would get a lot more grief from the tech bros. 
So what? Let's well, say more. I mean, what has? I was just guessing what the reaction is you've gotten, but what is the reaction you've gotten from some of the the insiders in tech who've engaged with this book? I've been very fortunate to be warmly received. So again, if I were wrong, it would be a different story. But what I'm arguing for is I'm arguing for more nuance in the way that we think about and use technology. There are a bunch of places where I absolutely would not go back to the pre-digital way of doing things. One of the things that I really value nowadays is the ability to to use apps and calendaring technology to avoid all of those back and forth emails about, oh, when can we meet? I have this uh, this like pretty detailed setup for managing my various calendars now, and I'm pretty happy with it. I pay for it. Like it's not something that is free. And I'm I'm really pleased with it. Uh, and it's extremely digital. But then uh, there are lots of places where we don't need digital technology. Like, you know, sometimes the right tool for the task is a book in the hands of a child sitting on a parent's lap. And sometimes it's easier to be in a room and thinking with people and just drawing on a piece of paper on the table. Like you don't necessarily need a smart board and, you know, complicated connectivity all the time. Uh, so I would like to get people away from binary thinking about we should always use technology, we should never use technology, like let's use it when it makes sense and let's not use it when it doesn't make sense. And let's think really carefully about the biases embedded in the technologies that are being sold to us. And maybe let's not spend a huge amount of money and effort on systems that are going to exacerbate social problems. And we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. We are halfway through my interview with Meredith Broussard, author of the new book, More Than a Glitch, Confronting Race, Gender, and Ability Bias in Tech. And as you heard, we talked about facial recognition and the racist outcomes of that technology and broaden the discussion to when we should use tech and when we maybe should not use tech. Those are both on the table. What a radical idea. Thanks to Meredith for stating those so clearly. Uh, if you'd like to join in the live, if you'd like to join in the live listener chat during the interview, go to wfmu.org, click playlist and comments. Or if you're listening in the future, you can read those comments by going to tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H, tonic.fm, and clicking on the playlist for April 17, 2023. Let's go ahead and listen to the second half of my interview with Meredith Broussard here on Tectonic on WFMU. Another chapter I liked a lot was... Ability and Technology, Chapter 6. This is where you cover the ability bias that you mentioned in the subtitle of the book. You write that technology has the potential to remove barriers, but developers keep designing inaccessible digital services. And here you talk about the millions of 
Americans and many more millions of people around the world who have a disability. Maybe they have impaired vision or hearing or some other disability. And the systems that we are presented with so often, the digital systems, assume a fully ableist user base. And so it often simply doesn't work if somebody has mm-hmm. a disability. So one of the models you give of a uh, positive innovation is the curb cut. And this is not a digital innovation, but you use the curb cut, as you put it, the curb cut effect, as you explain how technology can be built uh, in a more accessible way. Can you explain the curb cut effect? Sure. Um, So the big idea that I'm going for in that chapter, when I'm talking about uh, the intersection of technology and disability, is the idea that technology has has made the world more accessible. Like it's been great, the advances that we have made in using technology for accessibility. And also there is still a lot of work to be done, right? So we tend to stop, we tend to say, oh yeah, we have tech for that now. And then we kind of stop thinking about having to make things accessible, but we need to keep going. So the curb cut effect is a way of thinking about how everybody benefits when we design for accessibility. The curb cut is the area of the sidewalk that dips down into the street, right? And so you have probably used a curb cut like today, right? They were originally designed for uh, people using wheelchairs. They were implemented widely after the Americans with Disabilities Act. But curb cuts are not just good for people in wheelchairs. They're good for people using a whole range of mobility aids. They're good for people pushing strollers. They're good for people making deliveries with dollies. Uh, They're good for people uh, taking their bicycles up on the sidewalk, even though you're not supposed to have your bicycle on the sidewalk. Uh, So everybody benefits when we design for accessibility. Uh, And so we can think about this when it comes to designing technology as well. Uh, instead of thinking, all right, well, we have tech and this is going to allow us to, you know, to not think about disabled people. Instead, we should understand that there's not a one size fits all approach to disability. And we need to think about people with a range of abilities when we are designing our technologies. There's this really interesting concept that I came across called the disability dongle. That was my next question. I love this concept. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that a great phrase? So I I find this really helpful. So disability dongle is something that a designer, especially a designer of technology, makes that they think is going to be really useful for disabled people. And it's really not. Right. So an example of this is uh, the stair climbing wheelchair. So people uh, have designed all kinds of wheelchairs that climb stairs. And they often design this in a vacuum. And then you present something like this to somebody who uses a wheelchair and they inevitably say, well, I don't want that. Like that looks scary. I would rather have a ramp or an elevator. How about a ramp? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it's, Staggering to somebody who's really invested in you in over-engineering a solution, uh, because the ramp is is a very simple solution, but that's what's called for, right? Right. So we just we need to stop over-engineering things. We need to involve people with disabilities in 
the design process in these conversations. And we need to just listen to people more. And again, to the point of the book, the inaccessibility of these digital platforms is not a glitch. This is something that is baked into the mindset of the teams and the companies and even the business models of the companies Mm -hmm. creating these platforms. So we need to take this seriously as an underlying problem or, or as you say, a structural bias rather than something that is going to be fixed in the next update, which is Mm -hmm. so often you write about the the so-called lean startup method that was ascendant in Silicon Valley for, for so many years. I hope that it has been dimmed a little bit now with all the recent financial crashes out there. But uh, the idea being, oh, just just release something into the wild, you know, take your best guesses. And if there's a, if there's a glitch out there, like maybe it's inaccessible, then, then just rev the software and release it again, release it again, release it again. And then eventually, you know, you'll, you'll get bought by Google or go public or something. We'll all be rich and then we'll just leave everybody else holding the bag and then we'll all right off into the sunset. And that just does not work. That doesn't work for communities who are affected by these technologies. And I mean, maybe we stop doing that, but maybe that, you know, that strategy is, is not good for all of us. And maybe we should stop enabling that strategy. Yeah. Um, I mean, you see a lot of this happening now with ChatGPT. Uh, what OpenAI did is they just released ChatGPT into the wild and they're using the entire public as unpaid bug testers. And every couple of days or every couple of weeks, you see another story about you know ChatGPT doing something horrific, you know, putting out language that's racist or sexist or ableist or problematic in some way. And then OpenAI, I mean, to their credit, like they did, uh, they did put in some guardrails when they released it. And they're also doing a really good job of monitoring things like Reddit forums and public reports on ChatGPT. So every time there is a stir over ChatGPT saying something problematic, like they go in and they do release a patch and then, you know, it stops doing that thing, right? That's, that's better than what we've had in the past, but it's not, it's still not good. Like it's still not a good strategy. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm, I don't know, I'm a little sad. I'm a little tired of it. Uh, here's, here's a positive aspect of, especially of this ability and technology chapter that I wanted to spotlight. Something I really appreciated, a theme in the book that really came out in this, in this chapter, which is that you shared your own journey in learning about disability awareness and how software development engages with that or not. You write in this chapter, learning about accessibility and integrating accessible teaching techniques into my practices made me a better teacher. Here you're referring to your work as a NYU professor. And what I appreciated here is that you're sharing with the readers that you didn't come into this as a full expert on all of these different fields. You're learning and you're inviting us to learn as well. And so if you're creating a product and you make a mistake or you leave something out, it's not the end of the world. What you're encouraging us to do is to try to listen better and learn more. It's a process, right? It really is. 
Yeah. And I will say that disability was the thing that I had to learn the most about uh, in order to write this book. It was the thing that, uh, I mean, I felt like I had a pretty good handle on thinking about race and gender, but I just, I didn't know as much as I needed to about, uh, about disability and about accessibility. So I'm really grateful to the scholars and, uh, and activists who shared their stories with me and helped me learn. I'm not perfect. I don't think any of us are perfect. We all have unconscious bias and we're trying to be better people. We're trying very hard every day, uh, but we're not there yet. We don't live in a perfect world. And so it can work against us to expect perfection. We can't expect perfection when we are designing things, but we can learn as we go. We can iterate and we can get better. Are you hopeful about the future of digital technology? Having written this book, I mean, on the one hand, you shared a minute ago that you're feeling a little sad about the prospects. But on the other hand, you said you have mostly received a warm reception, mostly. Are you optimistic about where we're headed in tech? Well, I should say that the book is not a bummer. Like, it is not a sad book. Uh, it is a book that looks head on at a lot of social problems, unflinchingly even, but uh, I do offer a handful of solutions. I do offer some hope for the future. There is actually a chapter called Hope for the Future. And there are two things that I am really optimistic about. One is public interest technology, and the other is algorithmic auditing. Right. So public interest technology is just what it sounds like. It's the practice of making technology in the public interest. And so sometimes what that looks like is building better government technology, uh, doing U.S. digital service or Code for America type projects where you do something like work on a state unemployment website to make it more robust so that it doesn't go down when millions of people apply for unemployment simultaneously when there's a pandemic, right? Uh, so you can build better to government technology. Sometimes doing public interest technology looks like committing acts of investigative reporting, doing a kind of journalism called algorithmic accountability reporting. Uh, this is the kind of work that they're doing at the markup, uh, that is also happening at places like ProPublica or the New York Times, where journalists will do investigative projects around algorithms or will build their own algorithms in order to investigate social phenomena. Uh, and one of the things we're doing there as journalists is we're opening up black boxes. We tend to talk about algorithms as black boxes. We tend to think about them as things that we can't get insight into. But we have a lot of new methods now for opening up black boxes and achieving insights. And it's not easy. Uh, it's not easy. It's not fast. It requires a fair bit of knowledge. It requires a lot of time. It's, it's extremely expensive. We need to invest more in algorithmic accountability reporting, but it is absolutely possible. Right? And so algorithmic auditing is the process that we use in algorithmic accountability reporting and auditing is just what it sounds like it's you know it's looking at algorithms it's evaluating how they're biased and remediating that bias mathematically when it's possible 
And if we do that right, both with the auditing and public interest technology, then we can, as you write in the conclusion, we can employ technology to stop reproducing the world as it is and get us closer to a world that is truly more just. Is there anything that tectonic listeners can do other than reading your book? Should they choose technology better? Should they get involved in one of these projects? What's something somebody can do if they, if they really resonate with what we're talking about today? Well, I think you're right. I think buying my book is step number one. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing is uh, you can buy other books on this subject. I have a ton of book recommendations throughout the manuscript. And then also in the end, in the acknowledgments, there's another short reading list. I would start with works by Safia Noble and Ruha Benjamin, also uh, work by Charlton McElwain. And if you want to learn more about algorithmic auditing, I recommend starting with Kathy O'Neill's book, Weapons of Math Destruction. And Kathy runs one of the uh, very few algorithmic auditing consulting firms. So you can hire that firm to come in and audit your algorithms. There are, as I said, a bunch of mathematical methods for auditing algorithms. And you can do it internally or you can do it externally, right? So externally means uh, this is the kind of thing that journalists do, where we look at an algorithm. We don't have access to it, but we can test it. Uh, we can look at the inputs and the outputs and extrapolate what's happening inside the black box. Uh, an internal audit is something you would do internally at a company. And that's a little bit easier because you have access to the training data, the model, the code, the output of a system. And so it requires a bunch of tough conversations because people are not entirely prepared to have difficult conversations about how an algorithm might be discriminatory, right? So you've been building this model, you've been building this algorithmic system, you've invested hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars in the system, and somebody comes along and tells you, hey, listen, this might be ra racist, it might be discriminatory based on a disability, and, and by the way, that's illegal. You know, people are not entirely prepared to have those discussions, but we really need to, because it's happening, it's not, it's not really a secret that it's happening. We just pretended for a really long time that it wasn't happening. And it's just, it's past time to, to reckon with that fact. And I hope this book helps to set some organizations and people out there on a, on a better path with respect to technology development. The book is called More Than a Glitch, Confronting Race, Gender, and Ability Bias in Tech by my guest today, Returning to Tectonic, Meredith Broussard, I really appreciate you spending the time today and hope you'll be back again sometime. Mark, thank you so much for having me. Appreciate a great conversation. back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I will be your host. <laughs> Still am your host. I'll be your host for the remaining 15 minutes of the show. And then the great Dave Mandel takes over the captain's chair with his 
excellent show called It's Complicated. It's a prog rock show, and you should listen to it. I know that if you're listening to Tectonic in the Future as an archive or a podcast, you get the first few minutes of It's Complicated, but really, seek it out in the archives at WFMU.org, or if you're listening live, just keep the radio or the stream on and listen to the great Dave Mandel. I want to say thanks to Meredith Broussard for joining me for her second interview here on Tectonic, this time talking about her book that we just discussed, More Than a Glitch, Confronting Race, Gender, and Ability Bias in Tech. And as you heard her say at the very end, it can be a difficult conversation, especially if there's money already invested in some of these solutions and someone comes, maybe they've done an audit on the algorithmic system and they come and they say, uh, I've got some maybe challenging news for you. This, uh, the, the outputs are discriminatory. They're racist or they, and or they are sexist and or they are ableist. And uh, that can be difficult, but both thinking about the money that has already been, you know, that's already a sunk cost in the system, but also I imagine maybe there's possibly some defensiveness. We're not racist here. You know, we, we, there, there was no intent to make a racist or a sexist or an ableist uh, platform. So uh, maybe you're wrong. And that's the thing about difficult conversations. You know, you've, you've got to get through them if they are leading, leading a team, leading to some more just and more true place. And I think that is my interpretation. Is that, that's what Meredith is encouraging us, encouraging the tech industry to embrace, to do the hard work of working towards more fair and just and, and true outcomes of these technology systems, which is difficult because thanks to all of the AI and algorithms and big data and whatnot, a lot of these systems are built on data from the past. And if you know anything about American history, <laughs> do I need to spell it out about what has happened in the past in this country? The outcomes have often been racist, sexist, and or ableist, to use the three, the three parts of, of her book's subtitle. And so if we're building systems today that are based on data reflecting what happened in the past, then it just, it just stands to reason that there's going to be some correction needed. It, it, it's not, she, notice, Meredith did not say, she was not calling people racist in this interview. She was saying that the systems are built in such a way that they reflect uh, poorly the, this, the, the outcomes that we're shooting for today, because instead they reflect some some uh, very, very challenging and or shameful aspects of the history. Here I'm just talking about the U.S., but I, I imagine there are aspects of this that would be mirrored in other countries as well. But we're talking about American history for the moment. So uh, I, think it's, I think it's worth us spending time uh, learning about this book more than a glitch. And if you want to go further, as she said, a good next step is to go get the book and read it yourself. Someone asked on the comment board, what were the other books that she mentioned? Uh, Sophia Noble wrote a book called Algorithms of Oppression. And good news, friends, you can listen to Sophia Noble in the archives of Tectonic because she's a past guest talking about that book. We had a good conversation. Uh, Ruha Benjamin wrote a book. I think it's called Race and Technology. Uh, 
And Kathy O'Neill wrote a book called Weapons of Math Destruction. And there are others. If you get uh, more than a glitch, you will see a, uh, a, a, a nicely written bibliography of books, for, books and articles for further reading. So thanks again to Meredith, Meredith Broussard for doing this work and presenting us all with next steps. Um, along the lines of having difficult conversations and pursuing truth, <laughs> I just want to say something about uh, the Matt Taibbi interview, again, as promised in the, at the top of the show, uh, because Matt Taibbi, uh, as, as Ken mentioned in last week's show, he tends to be a polarizing figure. I think, this is my own personal opinion, I think he leans into that a little bit. I think he has some delight at being a polarizing figure. Maybe that's part of his thing. Uh, and so he came on the show last week at Ken's invitation to talk about his analysis of the Twitter files, uh, which were these, um, these internal documents that were made, uh, made available to uh, Matt Taibbi and a couple of other people at the invitation of Elon Musk. Once Elon Musk took over Twitter, uh, based on whatever agenda Elon Musk has, I, 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 could, I could offer conjecture, but I'm, I don't have many minutes on this. I just want to say, whatever Musk's agenda was and whatever Matt Taibbi's agenda was, I, I don't know. I, I'd like to take Taibbi at his word and, and and think that the reason he was interested in this project is because he likes doing investigative journalism and he wanted to reveal some some things that were going on that were uh, within Twitter pre-Musk that maybe shouldn't have been going on. But we can debate what, what what's in this person's mind, what's in that person's mind, uh, what are their intentions, who, who knows. Here's, here's why I think that conversation last week was important. If we just separate out all the stuff, I don't like this CEO because he did X. I don't like this person because he did Y. If you separate all that out for one, one second and just think about the conclusion, just think just for a second, just bracket all that other stuff just for a moment and think about the conclusion that Taibbi is offering from, from his deep dive into these documents, what he's showing is exactly in line with what I have been trying to communicate on this show over the years, and that is that there are manipulations going on in social media that we, the citizens, are not privy to, but should be, but we are not privy to. In, in, uh, in, to be specific, within Twitter, there were relationships with various government agencies where the government agencies were manipulating the narrative of various stories without citizens' knowledge and certainly without our consent. So there were external agencies to Twitter giving Twitter direction on how to manipulate the presentation of various stories. I want you to amplify this one. I want you to de-amplify that one. I want you to cancel that one com completely and, and, and hide it away. That is not what we do in a free and open society. That's not what is supposed to happen. That's what the bad guys do. The bad guys are the, in, 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 I'm not going to name names. The bad guys are the ones who are in authoritarian governments who are squelching dissent and squelching stories that make the government look bad. That's not what we do here in the U.S., or at least that's our brand. That's what we claim. That's what a lot of people believe, uh, you know, land of the free and so on. 
But what Taibi, the outcome of what I uh, of what I got from from Taibi's conversation with Ken last week, the outcome is that he is showing the files are showing that the manipulations were happening, and. The reason it was focused on Twitter is because that's where the files were available. But at, at one point in the conversation with Ken, Taibi says, it's happening at Google, too. And it's happening at Facebook, too. It's the, 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 what, what Taibi showed is happening at Twitter is just a case in point about how our big tech-dominated media ecosystem is being manipulated without our knowledge or consent. And that, friends, is worth paying attention to. If you can just bracket for one minute that you don't like the guy, I can, you know, I, 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 can, I can grant you that. I, I'm not going to say I can understand it. I don't have any feelings one way or another. I'm just saying if you have this feeling or that feeling, okay, fine. But bracket that and look at what the conclusion is that our media ecosystem is being manipulated behind the scenes in order to protect who knows what kind of agenda within the government. Uh, that's not what's supposed to happen in this, in this country. It's bad enough when you have the, the daily machinations of these big tech companies that are, and even under Musk, I'm not even getting into what Musk has been doing recently, which I also find reprehensible. Uh, the, these, these oligarchs in Silicon Valley are continually uh, doing things against the interests of citizens of this country and uh, having all sorts of awful effects here and around the world and totally unaccountable. It's bad enough that we have the corporate oligarchs to deal with without adding in the U.S. government as well. And yet that's what's happening. So again, if we can bracket out all of our other major feelings about this thing and just look at the outcome, look at the conclusions that are being surfaced, then we can say, yes, that is a worthwhile thing for us to know about. And then when we say that, then we can go back to hating on Elon Musk <laughs> and some of you hating on Taibi, which I'm not going to join in. But, you know, just I, I'm just trying to say I appreciate what Taibi told us last week and and in the, in the same vein, I appreciate what Meredith Broussard is telling us this week. There are difficult truths out there. And you know what, friends? Let me tell you something. Truth is not partisan. There is no one slice of the political spectrum that has a lock on the truth. And what I'm trying to do in this show is I'm trying to present you the truth wherever I can find it, the truth about what's happening in technology. I am trying to tell you the truth, and I am not a partisan, okay? So if, if you are hoping that this is going to be a partisan show that is always going to check the boxes for whatever party or whatever slice you are a, a, a partisan about, you're going to be disappointed because the truth is not partisan, okay? I am trying to uncover and find and present to you in, in an accessible and I hope rather friendly way the truth about what's happening in tech. And sometimes it's going to come from here and sometimes it's going to come from there. And sometimes it may come from a messenger who you don't particularly like. And I challenge you, I challenge you to look beyond your dislike of the person and think about the truth that's being revealed. I think we're going to get a lot further on this show 
this station, this community, this country, this world, if we can get past ourselves and try to look at what the truth actually is. And that's my job here. I'm trying. Of course, I'm imperfect. But I'm just trying to tell you the truth. And I hope this has been helpful. You've been listening to the greatest radio station in the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Until next time, friends, you know exactly what to do. Avoid Apple, abandon Amazon, forget Facebook, and whatever you do, get off Google. And thanks to Brother Blumen for turning me on to this great outro track we've got tonight called Download Yourself by Felix Kubin. Please stay tuned for the great Dave Mandel in a couple of minutes. The categorical imperative of web narcissism According to the guidelines of Immanuel Kant is Download yourself Download yourself Download yourself Download yourself The categorical imperative of monetarism according to the guidelines of John Locke is exploit yourself 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 Categorical imperative of self-absorption According to the guidelines of Sigmund Freud is Consume yourself Consume yourself Consume yourself Consume yourself Download yourself Download yourself Consume yourself, consume yourself.
and hello. Good evening and welcome to another installment of It's Complicated, an hour of Prague and Prague-adjacent music. I'm your host, Dave Mandel. I'm here every Monday at this time, which is 7 p.m. and 48 seconds. Synchronize your watch. Pleasure to be here. I'm here for an hour till 8 p.m. Do the math for you. And it's a pleasure to be here. I am going to start this evening's show. Hold on a second while I adjust my microphone. Oh, so much better. I'm going to start tonight's show with a couple of tracks related to a, a band called Bird Songs of the Mesozoic. They were active in the late 80s, early 90s. Late 80s, definitely, probably into the early 90s. And, you know, I, I've, I'm very familiar with this group, but not, not, not that familiar because I only realized just recently they, that they were actually uh, sort of a spinoff of the group Mission of Burma. And that's not obvious. The music is very, very different from Mission of Burma's. I'm a Mission of Burma fan, but this is different and um, appropriate for this show, I would say. So I'm going to play something by that group, Bird Songs of the Mesozoic. They were from Boston, by the way. And I'm going to follow that. If it's, if it's still here. Oh, here it is. I'm going to follow that with a track from a member of the group, Bird Songs of the Mesozoic, namely Eric Lindgren. I'm going to play something from a, a disc he released in the early 90s. So two tracks before I start ranting at you again. Bird Songs of the Mesozoic, followed by Eric Lindgren. And 